page 678, Song of Solomon, chapter 4, beginning at the first verse. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Senir and Hermon, from the dens of lions and from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all chief spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Drink and be drunk with love. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am sick with love. 
What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved, that you thus adjure us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold, his locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid love. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned, that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bits of spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. You are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins, not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are sixty queens and eighty concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom, before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. Return, return, return O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. What I'd like to do is begin with both a request and a correction. The request is this. Um, a particular family came up last week with a haiku. Is that what you call them? Is that right? That summed up last week's now, I left it as a marker in one of the Bibles that I'd marked up with the Song of Songs. If you've got it, then you'll see the Song of Songs is marked with red, yellow, and orange highlighter and a rather fine haiku, which I think went like this, okay, to sum up last week's talk. Sex is mostly good, except when it's sometimes bad, so we must guard it. Was that more or less what it said? Something like that, wasn't it? Okay, so that's roughly where we got to last week in the Song of Songs. Here's the correction, which I think will help us. Okay, so we're studying the Song of Songs. And we've just had read to us the scene that depicts the physical consummation of the marriage between a lover and her beloved, hence the nudging and giggles. Over the centuries, people eager to avoid the sexual language of this book for reasons of prudishness have sought to read out anything physical from it. And I would suggest that chapter 4, verses 1 through to 5, 1 uh, present a major problem if that's your desired reading. Uh, 
The lover traces his beloved body from head to toe, your eyes, your hair, your teeth, your lips, your cheeks, your neck. The lover describes his beloved as his bride on six occasions. My sister, my bride, 4, 8. My sister, my bride, verse 9, verse 10. My sister, my bride, my bride, verse 11, 12. My sister, my bride. And then at consummation, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. And then the beloved invites her lover for sexual consummation. That's what consummation is. It's the sexual act that actually seals the marriage. And verse 16, awake, O north wind, I think it's the woman speaking, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And then the lover describes what he's doing. I came to my garden my sister, my brother, I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then the whole community, I don't think they're looking on, but they celebrate sexual union. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And then the beloved reflects on it in the past tense. It's very hard to read sexual activity out of Verses 4 and 6 of chapter 5. My beloved put his hand to the latch. My heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open. My hands dripped with myrrh. My fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. Okay, so after that rather explicit beginning, here's the correction. I said last week that this is a poem about sex, and I used the headings good sex, bad sex, God and sex for the three talks. This is today, bad sex. But over the course of the week, very helpfully it was pointed out to me that perhaps love is a better description, and I like that. You know, close to 50 times, love, or my beloved, is mentioned. And so perhaps we should put it like this. This is a poem about love and sex, about true love. And we're going to see next week that this poem's aim is to restore love and to reinstate true love to comprehend, enjoy, and benefit from genuine love. I'll talk about that more in a minute and much more next week. And our method over the three weeks has to be to approach the poem in a way that I think we find it when we first come to it. First time through, there's no mistaking, it's a poem about sex. Read it five, six, seven, ten times, and you begin to think it's much more than that. And that's where I want to go today, that it's not just about good sexual union and kind of pure love, but there's actually quite a sinister undercurrent to it. So let's begin with the power of love, and there's a degree of recap here. There's no doubt that she, the woman, takes the initiative in this sexual relationship just as much as he does. There's no hint here of a woman repressed or downtrodden. She's quite a woman. And she's strong. She's no little woman. Against the backdrop of sexual repression and the cheapening of sex, its commodification in Solomon's kingdom and his reign, and in our own times, 
We find this woman profoundly confident in her own femininity and on the front foot in the relationship from the get-go. Chapter 1, verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. 3, verse 1, I sought him. 5, 6, I sought him. Even in the consummation scene itself, let him blow upon my garden, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. But then he isn't browbeaten, downtrodden in any sense. Behold, he comes leaping over the mountains. I love that description, don't you? He comes like a stag, like a gazelle. It's absolutely terrific, this bloke. And then chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. So there's initiative, but the initiative appears to be shared. And I just wonder whether this challenges slightly our understanding of love and who makes the first move. Are we still quaintly Victorian, perhaps, in our practice of complementarity in marriage? I wonder. There's certainly mutual admiration, and it isn't simply physical. So he says to her, turn away from me. Your eyes overwhelm me. You've captivated my heart. He's almost in awe of her. Husbands, it's worth asking whether you have that kind of respect. And then she says to him, you whom my soul loves. And she describes him as my beloved and my friend. I love that in chapter 5, verse 16, where she calls, in the midst of all this kind of passion, she calls her man my friend. It's beautiful. Initiative, mutual admiration. It is absolutely consensual, this relationship. Let my beloved come to his garden. She says, there I will give you my love, which I've laid up for you. No hint of coercion, manipulation. And let me reiterate that again. There is absolutely no hint in the love that is celebrated in this poem of coercion or manipulation. There is such a thing in the Bible as ungodly sex. Read Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27, and you'll see that. You may have heard it put about that a married woman has a duty to provide sexual pleasure for her husband at whatever point he demands and in whatever way he demands. And I would suggest this poem contradicts that. The Bible certainly does. Absolutely. There are responsibilities in marriage to serve one's partner, both for the man and for the woman. A couple's bodies belong to one another in a marriage relationship. Husbands and wives are to find out how to be other-centered in their approach to sexual love. But there is never, ever to be coercion or manipulation or sex on demand in the marital bed. And then the celebrated love is also absolutely exclusive. The only kind of love that this poem celebrates is love and sex, the only kind of sex this poem celebrates, rather, is sex within a consensual, mutual, admiring, exclusive relationship between a man and a woman that is faithful and lifelong. That comes all the way through the poem. We looked at it last week. The woman does not appear to have sex with Solomon in chapter 1. Some people, I think, are mistaken in suggesting that. The lover says... 
of the beloved that she is a garden locked up, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. She keeps herself for her lover. She says, I was a wall. She enclosed herself with boards of cedar. Obviously not literally, but she was a garden locked up. And in the physical union, it's just her and him. She is his bride. He is her husband. The union is celebrated publicly by the community, but it's one man and one woman till death us do part with no other partners at any point. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine, she says. Chapter 6, verses 8 to 9 you notice the contrast. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. Ugh, Solomon's harem, how ghastly. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. Pure sexual union between one man and one woman with actually everything else, anything outside of that, is kind of ugly. So initiative, mutual admiration, consent, exclusivity, passion. There's plenty of passion. And then when you read it and reread it and read it again, following the consummation, the sexual union of chapter 4 and 5, what you discover is peace and contentment that flows from this guarded and governed love. After the marriage is consummated and following what I think is one other further sexual union between this couple On both occasions, there's peace and tranquility and calm as he browses amongst the lilies, and there's just this wonderful sense of peace in this union. It's a celebration of love. And after the idolatry and the sexual immorality of Solomon, who was the greatest king of Israel, and yet profoundly flawed with his 700 wives and 300 concubines. Have you ever read what's known as the golden age and thought to yourself, but, but there's something really ugly about this. What if you were one of the harem? It's everything that Israel were warned about. If they were to have a king, oh, he'll be after your daughters. And you read that in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And then when you come to Solomon, that's precisely what you discover with Solomon. He is after your daughters, all 1,000 of them. And so after the idolatry and the sexual immorality, I think that's the only way you can put it as Solomon and those who follow him, it's as if this poem is for Israel teaching them how to love again, pressing the reset button, going back to Genesis 2. And the author's aim is that we comprehend love, that we enjoy love as a whole church, that we benefit from love in its proper place and are thankful for it. And in a sense, that Israel longs to love again, having had such a wretched example of it. We'll come to that in much more detail next week. Well, so much for that first reading and for the physical consummation of the wedding that we just had read to us and its very graphic sexual imagery. But as we read the poem and then read it, and I think I'm on reading somewhere between 40 and 50. I've lost count, actually. So we begin to find that there's something really rather disturbing about it. And that's why I say it is profoundly subversive that it is is it undermines 
and ask questions of Israel's understanding of love and Solomon's kind of love. And because our culture's understanding of love is as ugly as Solomon's, it begins to ask questions of 21st century Western culture. As I say, Solomon is such a contradiction. In one sense, he appears to be the peak and the climax of all Israel's hope. His wisdom, his wealth, his weaponry, but then his women. So, such an ugly image. I was going to say so ugly. I don't mean it, I don't mean it like that, but his, his, the way he treated women was so ugly. So let's move from what I began there, the power of love, to the pain of love. And I, I put here, if you see on your handout there, I put love in inverted commas there on a couple of occasions because on those two occasions, the middle two here, when we talk about love, we're going to be talking about the way the world sees love, the way love was, if you like, in Solomon's court, a a profound misunderstanding of love. In a sense, we hardly need the Bible to tell us that love can be painful. Okay, talk to your friends at school. Read your news feeds, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. The week before um, this weekend, I took all the papers on Saturday morning and just laid them out and just looked at the different examples of, you know, wrecked love. Paul Hollywood, how bake-off cost me my marriage. No, lust cost you your marriage, actually. But, uh, you know, the whole ugly sort of stuff, Stella Creasy on sexual encounters at university and so forth. So it's there in your news feeds. It's there, isn't it, if you listen to your playlist, Love in the Dark, I Can't Love You in the Dark, It Feels Like We're Oceans Apart. Elton, sorry seems to be the hardest word. Phil Collins, you have no right to ask me how I feel. In fact, every one of us can rewind our own back story and we know that love can be painful. But as we read and reread the poem, at least four themes emerge of, if you like, painful love. The difficulty of love, even of true love. I haven't put this in inverted commas on your handout, but even where kind of it ends in inverted commas happily ever after, it can be so complex and difficult. Chapter 3, verse 1 begins with our beloved on her bed. I think it's probably the night before her wedding, but you can't be absolutely sure. And actually, to be honest, I don't even know if the woman existed or whether it's just a poem that's been made up. But in the poem, if it's made up or in reality, she's on her bed and she appears to be dreaming. And if you read verses 1 to 5, look at it. On my night, bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city and the streets and in the squares. I'll seek him whom my soul loves. I, I sought him, but found him not. The watchman found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed him when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you. That is, I plead with you, daughters, do not awaken love until it so desires. 
So that even just that seems to suggest there's a kind of anxiety about love and kind of getting together. And you go to the back end of the, uh, the, 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 the scene of um, sexual consummation, look at chapter 5, verse 2, and we've got another night scene. I think she's dreaming. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night, he says. I put off my garment. How could I put it on? I bathed my feet. How could I solve? My beloved put his hand to the latch. My heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the boat. I bolt, I opened to my beloved. But my beloved had turned and gone. So there's this kind of anxious, stressful aspect of love that's there both before and after the wedding. Wedding, a, a second night scene comes after the marriage is consummated. She describes it in graphic detail, the sexual encounter, but then the dream descends into the same kind of anxious uncertainty. I think it's a dream. I think it's a nightmare. But it kind of captures the difficulty of love. Once you've noticed that, the difficulty of love, its complexity, appears to be everywhere in the poem, apart from when she and her beloved are in marital union. Chapter 6, verse 12 is fascinating. Glance down at 6, 12, and 13. Come, my beloved, let us go into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards and see where the vines... Oh, that's chapter 7, sorry, chapter 6, verse 12. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, the prince. I think she's there, down in the kind of charioteer's stables, and there are the charioteers. All the blokes are there, and she's there. And then they say... Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may gaze upon you. She's so beautiful, they're longing to look on her, and we're not quite sure what their looks are. I think many of the blokes will know. And then he replies, why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance between two armies? How beautiful you are, your feet, and so forth. And so you've got the kind of lustful looks of the charioteers, her in slight danger, the difficulty of love, the need for protection. So love is profoundly complex. Even true love and love amongst Christian brothers and sisters is profoundly complex. And I think the more you read that, you get that as a sense of something of the complexity, the difficulty, the pain of love. And now I just say from a personal point of view. You know, I first came to a talk on sex and marriage here in 1985, okay? And again in 1995, when I was leading the Read, Mark, Learn work here on a Sunday at six o'clock and doing um, um, Luke Cornelius's job, we had talks on sex and love and marriage, again in 2005 and so forth, and here we are today. And may I just say the issues are always the same, <laughs> the complexities and the difficulties. Uh, when Janet and I got together, it was extraordinarily complex. I'm not going to go into the detail now, but I admired her from afar for years, but was just much too proud to say anything about it. And she claims to have admired me from afar, but I think that's uh, retelling the story from after the event. But it was just very complicated, and it is complicated, and I think the poem captures something of this. 
And there was at least one other person who completely got the wrong end of the stick and uh, was very un unfortunate and unhappy. Read any romantic novel and you'll find precisely the same. Doesn't mean we simply shrug our shoulders, just that we recognize that love is complex, difficult. But then I want to introduce you just to another aspect that love, and here I want to put it in inverted commas, that is the kind of love that this poem does not celebrate, can be dangerous. It really can be very abusive. We've just spoken about the looming threat when she was amongst the charioteers. There she is in the stables, and there are some of the men looking lustfully on. But we find this kind of idea much more explicit elsewhere. Look at the second dream, chapter uh, 5, and we've looked at verses 6. But now look at verse 6 and 7, chapter 5, 6 and 7. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. Gone, my soul failed when me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him. He gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. Now, what does that describe? To take away a woman's veil at night when she's wandering alone, a group of blokes. And I think the danger of love is hinted again at again in chapter 2, verse 15. You get it there. Catch the little foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. The vineyard all the way through is a picture of romantic love and in some cases sexuality. But there are these little foxes that spoil. So it's not all a bed of roses. And indeed, it, is, it does appear to be, to a degree, that there's something really profoundly dangerous. And therefore, the lover to whom she, the beloved, flees and finds herself eventually in the security of her mother's house, I think that is a picture of security and stability. We'll go into it more next week. But... The lover to whom the beloved flees is a protector and a guardian and a place of security. And I know that in a congregation of this size, it is likely, desperately sadly, that because of the wretched sinfulness of humanity, there are going to be some, through absolutely no fault of our own, for whom talk about love and sex is profoundly painful. And I think this poem recognizes that. There will be some who've been the subject to sexual abuse of one sort or another. Others who look back on their own sexual behavior, sexual behavior of our own, and we find ourselves deeply ashamed. And I think that gives us a chance, doesn't it, to recognize that together, to say you know, what we often say, that there's nobody who is sexually pure here in this room, that's for sure. And if we have been the subject of some sort of sexual abuse, we're appropriate to report it, knowing that we'll be taken with utmost seriousness and we will be treated with respect and care. And that if we've been a perpetrator of this kind of so-called love, which is depicted as 
and I say in inverted commas for the sake of the, the, the tape, which is depicted as love by our culture, then we need to repent of it, to turn from it, to confess it, and if necessary, to own up to it. Now, alongside this kind of dangerous love that you see here, I think there is also very clearly an understanding of what I call damaging love. Uh, That is that the multiple unrestrained sexual encounters in Solomon's harem that the daughters of Jerusalem appear to idolize, it's almost as if the daughters of Jerusalem want to be part of this ghastly kind of harem, is profoundly damaging. I think you get that in chapter 8, verses 10 through 12, and I don't think you can miss it. So have a look at chapter 8. We'll spend a lot more time here next week. But she says, look, I was a wall. My breasts were like towers, and therefore I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. However, I put that in, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hammon. Notice Baal Hammon. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. But my vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, you can keep your thousand. That's 700 wives and 300 concubines. And the keeper of the fruit, 200. So alongside the beautiful image of consensual, mutual admiration, sex where both are taking the initiative in an exclusive union where peace is to be found, you have this very ugly depiction of another kind of, in inverted commas, so-called love. Now, my suggestion, I think we've just got time for this. My suggestion is that all the way through, Solomon and his harem are depicted as a place of fear, of damage, and of degradation. I mean, you can see it in chapter 6, what we just had read so well for us. Chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number, but my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. Do you see? You can keep your thousand. Hollywood sex, it's profoundly ugly, profoundly ugly and damaging. I want to show you chapter 3 and the poem that on first reading appears to celebrate Solomon. And I want to suggest to you that it actually does nothing of the sort. And we need to just get a tiny bit technical, so bear with me if you would. Three times through, the woman begs the daughters of Jerusalem to keep guard over love. It's there in chapter 2, verse 7. I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The warning to guard sexual love of this sort here comes in the context of a celebration of an exclusive relationship between her husband and herself. See verse 6? His left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, do not awaken love. At the back end, we get the same kind of idea. Have a look at chapter 8 and verses 2, 3, and 4. 
I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. Do you see that was there in chapter 2? Exactly the same. I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, do not awaken love until it so desires. You've got exactly the same picture in both of those places. Now look at the depiction of Solomon in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 4. I held him and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house, place of safety. I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the does of the field, that you do not stir up awake in love until it so pleases. What is this, or rather, who is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense? It's the litter of Solomon with its 60 mighty men, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion. Look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. So you've got these pictures of the perfect love affair with his left hand is under my head, his right hand embraces me, with her in her mother's house, a place of safety and security, um, and uh, with this pleading that you do not awaken love until it so desires. But then in the middle, you've got this do not awaken love, and then you've got this description of the love train of Solomon. And the more you look at the love train of Solomon the more you see it's just profoundly contrasts with the perfect love of the love and his lover. I'm told the language is more of the bed in his palace than of a kind of carriage that was carried at a wedding. He comes up from the wilderness and he doesn't seem to appear to do anything other than remain in the wilderness. It doesn't give way to an image of luxuriant Love, it almost appears to be sterile. And at the back end, we have exactly the same, 8 verse 5, who is this coming up from the wilderness? But instead of Solomon with his thousand brides who inlay his marriage bed, you have the love of the lover and the beloved. Observation. Now, if you've missed all of that, don't worry. Um, you can come back now. It seems to me, at least, that the poem as a whole is asking us to ponder the ugly and damaging nature of sex when it is outside of an exclusive, mutual, consensual, and intimate union of marriage. Solomon was a womanizing idolater. His women led him into more and more idolatry, and his idolatry led him into more and more women. And this kind of cheapening and devaluing of sex is precisely the opposite of true love, and it in effect sterilizes it. As a culture moves away from the God of the Bible with his desire for an intimate and exclusive, faithful, deeply loving relationship with his people, so a culture moves further and further away from a true understanding of sex and love. 
Sex is a good gift from God. It's designed as a final act of intimacy in a wholly consensual, mutually respectful, binding relationship between one man and one woman. And in such a context of trust and constancy and protection and care, you really can expose yourself and make yourself completely vulnerable. There's nothing more vulnerable and exposed than two naked human beings in the marriage bed. There really isn't. But marriage between one man and one woman is meant to be the climax of two people made in the image of God being brought together to represent that image to the, to, I was going to say to the watching world, but you know what I mean, to the world. And so as you drift from the God who is faithful and exclusively committed to his people, so you drift into a view of sex as a commodity that doesn't need faithfulness and exclusivity, that is cheapened, that is sterile, that is as ugly and as gross as Solomon's marriage bed. And that explains, I think, the crazy contradictions within our culture which holds up sex as the ultimate expression of, in inverted commas, love, but at the same time commercializes and industrializes it, prizes sex, cheapens sex, idolizes sex, objectifies women. Hollywood is profoundly abusive towards women profoundly abusive towards men and women. Damaging, profoundly damaging. You simply cannot take the intimate bonding act between one man and one woman and then rip it apart and then glue it back together with somebody else and then rip it apart and then glue it back together with somebody else and then rip it apart without doing profound damage to a person at the deepest possible level, which is where our government and educators and social opinion formers have got things so hopelessly wrong. The only place for safe sex is within a relationship between one man and one woman that is lifelong and exclusive till death us do part. And just to say, well, slap on a condom and try it with somebody else, is just a complete lie and profoundly damaging. Now, once again, I know this can be incredibly painful for many of us, And if you have been exposed to that kind of deceitful vision of sex and love, uh, you may well want to talk to somebody about it afterwards and, and pray with somebody about it. We have to speak about pornography in this context, which not only objectifies men and women, which is wrong in itself, but also damage the person who views pornography by making what is designed to be an other person-centered thing, that's what sex is, other person-centered, all about me, and so turns a person in on themselves. Now the last point, and then we're just about done, under this point of the pain of love, is to make the obvious point, I think, that even what one might call ideal marital love is not ultimately fulfilling. Did you notice how the poem ends? Well, let's put it like this. How would you expect the poem to end? A Notting Hill ending? Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts off into the sunset? A a, a kind of Crocodile Dundee moment? I love you across whichever tube underground station it was? Or 
A Shrek moment. Ah, Fiona. Yes, Shrek. I love you. Really, but I'm supposed to be beautiful. But you are beautiful. I love you. (laughs) Ugly ever after. It doesn't actually finish there, does it? Oh, you who dwell in the garden with companions listening to you, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. (laughs) It's as if you're going back to the beginning all over again. And so the marriage has been consummated, there's been sexual union, and it it hasn't actually totally satisfied. And within marriage, well, there can be great disappointment, complication, Even where there are disappointments in the area of sexual um, activity, there can be, even where there there aren't those, it it, it isn't ultimately, ultimately fulfilling. And even then, all the way through, there are those friends and others who aren't in the union. Well, next week we're going to see that the deliberate intent of this poem is to get under a skin, and I hope I've just begun to help us to see how it does that and to make us think that there must be more than just sexual union in true love. It can be painful, immensely painful. It's difficult. It can be dangerous, damaging. It's even disappointing to a degree. But that this poem urges us to seek out one who is, well, actually not like Solomon. It presses the reset, but takes us back to Genesis 2 and causes us to long for one who is faithful, who protects, who uh, is able to give us this intimate relationship to purify us, protect us, and provide for us. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus is first encountered in John's Gospel, first of all, it's at the wedding feast at the well, and then very quickly we find him with the woman who's had five husbands and the man who she's currently living with is not her husband. And he says to her, whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. And we're going to see next week that there is such a thing as a perfect bridegroom, both for the married and for those who are not yet married or never will be married that he washes his bride, he gives her white robes, he purchases her. And when he purchases his bride, he knows what he's purchasing. He bought you with his blood, and he knew what he was buying when he paid the price. Isn't that wonderful? But we'll come to that next week. Let's pray together. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, people and language standing before the throne of the Lamb clothed in white robes. Our Father, we praise you for the cleansing that is ours as we come to Jesus, for the forgiveness, for the fresh start. We praise you for his protection, for his love for us in spite of what we are. 
praise you for the power of your Holy Spirit dwelling within us that can remake us and help us to deal with deep, deep issues from our past. We pray that each one of us may come to know the Lord Jesus and his healing hand on our life more and more. In his name, amen.